Well, welcome, brothers and sisters and friends and seekers. We're in the middle of our uh, series, Great Questions. And throughout the last couple of weeks, we've had on Facebook uh, an active poll asking you, what are the great questions you think that the church should answer? And we're going to do our best over the next four weeks to answer some of those questions. Today, uh, we're starting with the number one question, which is why do bad things happen to good people? Uh, we're going to work up to other questions. Why are there different denominations? Why, why are you Christian when religion seemed to be the cause of a lot of violence in uh, the world and through history? And, and there's another one that's escaping my mind right now. But we'll be looking at those questions as we go through. But this morning, we're going to look at why do bad things happen to good people? And why do bad things happen at all? And if you've lived life for any length of time, you've asked this question. You, you, you have to have asked this question because bad things happen quite a bit. You know, being a minister, I get invited into difficult and sad places. I mean, I've had people ask me in the hospital, can we pull the plug? You know, can, can we do that? Um, talking about somebody, we think it's time to put them in hospice care. Is that okay for us to sort of give up? And then normally shortly on the heels, after you kind of get through that crisis, there's always this next question, which is, why, why did God cause this to happen? Why, why is this here? Why does evil happen? And, and like you, my answer a lot of times, you know, in these particular situations is, I don't know. I don't know why in this situation this happened this way. And this morning, maybe some of you have come and you've got those questions, and maybe you're going through a situation kind of like that right now, and you're thinking, man, I, I've got this question. I'm wondering, why do bad things happen? And we're going to do our best to look at God's Word and what Scripture says about that and try to explain what it is that, that we as a church understand. And we're going to do that through Scripture. And we're, we're looking at Scripture because we believe that that's God's Word. And we don't say it's true because it's in the Bible. We believe that it's in the Bible because it's true. And so we're going to look at that. But before we get into why do bad things happen to good people, I want to ask another question. Because that, that very question, why do bad things happen to good people, is built on a hypothesis. The hypothesis goes something like this. Bad things shouldn't happen to good people. We think bad things should not happen to good people. And my question this morning, and I, I hope it's not callous or doesn't come across as callous or unfeeling. My question is this. Why shouldn't they? Why shouldn't bad things happen to good people? Now, I, I don't mean that mean, but I mean, if, if in all seriousness, we're, we're simply the product of chance and disaster then why shouldn't bad things happen to good people? I mean, if, if lightning struck and two molecules united and a heart started to beat somewhere along the line, and, and that evolved into something else, and, and, and it just whatever was more fit survived, and, and we're here only because our ancestors knew that they could kill or be killed, eat or be eaten, then why shouldn't bad things happen to good people? Why shouldn't bad things happen so that I can get ahead and more good can come to me? Now, now some people will say, well, well, wait a second, we, we've evolved past this. You know, we, we've got what we call herd morality, you know, because if I treat you a certain way, you'll treat me a certain way, then together society, we can live, and in living together as society, we can accomplish more together than we could if we were separate. Well, well, that works, but the problem is that with herd morality, we sort of get to decide what's right and wrong. And we can look at sort of some case studies on those kinds of things where people throughout the world, maybe that group 
of people, that herd of people to sort of use that same terminology, says, you know, everybody that doesn't sort of believe like we do, they die. And we sort of go, well, that's maybe not right. Or you go to a place like China and say, you know, you get one child, maybe a little bit more if you've got a special permit. And if you have more than one child, when you give birth to the child in the hospital, we're going to take that child and put that child in the trash bag. And we kind of sit and we kind of go, well, that doesn't seem quite right either. I mean, if, if we've got this sort of like cooperative morality, then, you know, what would stop us, for instance, you know, at age 65, when you're supposed to be able to retire and collect, you know, retirement money from the government, you know, we were to look at people and say, listen, you know, we appreciate the fact that you've worked really hard, but you're, you're not really useful anymore. And we love you and you've been great and you've done a lot of good things, but, you know, 65, you're just going to be sort of a drain on the system. And so collectively, we've decided uh, to vote you off the island, and well, we're going to execute you. We're going to do it real nice. We're not going to hurt you. We want to be, you know, be polite about it, but you've got to go. You've just got to go. We just can't afford to keep you around. Now, some of you are looking a little horrified. You're like, wow, that's me. They would have just voted me off the island. I would no longer be here. Others of you are like, well... There's something about that that seems wrong to me. And you might even be thinking, I can't even put my finger on what it is. Maybe you don't like your grandparents. I don't know. But, you know, I can't quite put my finger on what it is. There's something inside of us that, that says these things are right and these things are wrong. C.S. Lewis, as we talked about last week, said that there's a sense of ought that is sort of baked into us, hardwired into us, that we look at situations and we go, there are things you ought to do and things you ought not to do. And that, we say, comes from God. I would say the reason we think bad things shouldn't happen to good people or bad things shouldn't happen at all is because we care about justice. And we care about justice because we were created in God's image. If God created us in his image, as Genesis said, it said male and female, he creates them uh, in his image. God creates male and female. He creates them right there in Genesis chapter 1. We see this picture. Then if we're created in the image of God, then we're going to like the things God likes. We're going to care about the things that God cares about. And the reason we care about justice, even when it doesn't make sense in terms of furthering our society, the reason we care about justice is because God cares about justice. We see God cares about justice so much that the first five books of the Hebrew Bible that are the Old Testament in our Christian Bible, that the first five books of the Old Testament, we call them the books of the law. That's how much God cares about justice. He didn't write, you know, biography up front. He didn't write, you know, sort of like the, you know, his memoir. The first thing he did was write a legal treatise on how people ought to get along. Now, if I were to ask you, what are some of God's laws? You could probably say, well, the Ten Commandments, don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery, all those kinds of things. Yes, that's true. Uh, but if you look at God's law, you see that God really cares about justice. And he cares about it in all of its different forms and shapes. Uh, most of you don't spend enough devotional reading in the, the Pentateuch, so I'm going to give you some verses to kind of illustrate this. We'll look at Exodus 21. And while I do that, I'm also going to ask the people in the sound back, there's a humming up here that's just like it's sucking my will to live. If you could remove that, that would be great. All right, Exodus 21 says this. When an ox gores a man or woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten. I mean, the ox gored somebody, the ox killed somebody, so you shouldn't kill it and profit from it. I mean, that's just kind of heartless. You stone it to death, you don't eat it. But the owner of the ox shall not be liable. Why? Well, because the owner didn't gore the person to death. The, the, the ox did. 
But verse 29, God says this. He says, well, if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has been warned but not restrained it, and it kills a man or woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner shall also be put to death. God cares about justice. He says, listen, it would not really be fair for you to be held liable for your ox, which is a, a wild animal, to go and to gore somebody to death. We're going to say, you know, you're on the hook for that. But if you knew better, if you knew your ox was prone to that, and you let it loose, and it trampled somebody or gored them and killed them, then it's like you ran out there and did the same thing. God cares about justice, even in these small, tedious kinds of situations. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 14. says, The seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do no work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male nor female servant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your town, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. God, in this verse, we see he wants justice to apply to everybody. Not just the Israelites, not just the males, not just the heads of house. He says, I want everybody to experience justice. I want the, the aliens. I want the, the servants. I want everybody to experience law and justice and my goodness and my grace and my rest. And so we care about justice because God cares about justice. We care about life because there's something intrinsically valuable about life. That valuable thing is the image of God that is in each one of us. And when something bad happens to that, we go, man, that's not right. Yet being created in the image of God is sort of a double-edged sword because God is more than just justice personified. We know also that God is loving. And because God is loving, He has made us to be loving. And so we were made to choose love or hate. Now, I get a little uncomfortable when people talk about God creating humanity and they say, you know, God created people because God was lonely. I mean, can you imagine spending eternity with nobody else? You'd get bored. You'd be alone. You would have to create somebody. This is not a good picture. You know, we know that, that, that there's angels, there's angelic beings. I mean, those have existed. You know, we don't know how long. It doesn't tell us. Well, we know that God has existed in perfect trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, perfect love, perfect relationship. God has kept himself company for eternity. God did not wake up one morning of, of, of the infinite time span that he's existed and say, you know what, today'd be a good day to finally not be alone. God woke up one day and said, you know what, I want to make something. I want to make something that looks a little bit like me, that could choose me and love me if it wanted to. And so because God chose us, he wanted us to choose him. But the problem is this, is that you can't choose if you have no choice. Have I lost anybody yet? So God creates humanity with a choice, the ability to choose him or not, the ability to love or not love. God creates us with this ability to choose, and with that ability comes the ability to both love and hate, care and kill, nurture and destroy. Now, some of you are thinking, well, it would have been easier to create us without choice. Well, that's true, but if you've seen the Lego movie and you've seen Lord Business, you know, you know how that works out. If you haven't, that's your required reading this week. But there's something really unsatisfying about being in a relationship with something that has no choice. I know this from personal experience. And, and here's how I know this. 
Uh, one of our children, and they shall remain nameless, no names on this one here. One of our children for their birthday said, I would really like a robo puppy, a robo puppy. I want a robotic dog. This dog barks. It has a leash that's also the remote control, and it just sort of does dog things. It walks, you know, albeit a little stiffly. It'll sit down, and it barks, and it does all those kinds of things. We got RoboDog knowing it was going to be a loser. We're like, you're not, this is going to wear out real soon, but sometimes as parents, you're like, that's what they want. That's what they're going to get, and so that's what they got. So RoboDog was really novel and exciting for about five minutes. And then a little bit later in the day, we started hearing RoboDog very muffled, coming from another part of the house. And we found RoboDog locked in a closet. And we said, well, why is RoboDog in the closet? And, well, RoboDog's obnoxious, and I was tired of it. And so I just put it in the closet. Now, you can't do that with a real dog, or you're not supposed to do that with a real dog. Now, now, we have a real dog. Now, that was sort of the thing that killed me about this whole thing, is we've had a real dog with us for quite some time. This, this, she's a senior dog, and she's, she's neurotic at best and deranged at worst. And she, any chance she gets, she takes off, but she always comes back. And when she comes back, she smells terrible, and she's got these things in her fur, and she sits on the bed, and she gets on our couch, and she doesn't just sit on the bed. She, like, gets under the sheets of the bed, no matter how many times you say, don't do that, that's gross. This dog is a drain on our economy. This dog is a drain on our time. I mean, this dog, but there's something about this dog, it keeps choosing us. Every time it gets away, no matter how many times we say, you know, right, when you get there, it returns. And so because this dog keeps choosing us, there's something inside us, and it it's probably could be dealt with with good, strong medication. There's something inside of us that keeps choosing this dog. And I think to a much greater extent, when you've got rational human beings and a loving God. There's this choice when it is shared. It's really, really beautiful. Uh, love is a choice. And this choice is what makes us more like God. First John chapter 3, verse 10 says this. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. God says, listen, it's a choice. You choose righteousness and you choose love and you choose me. You don't choose righteousness and you don't choose love. And what you choose is you choose death and pain and hurtfulness and hate. And God says that's, that's a choice you have. But we couldn't have the choice of love if we didn't have the choice to not love. And so here we are. We've got this ability to ask a question. Why do bad things happen to good people? And it shows in us this unsettled uh, reality. Where we go, you know, we look at this world and we sense that this is not how it's supposed to be. We've got this image that we've been created in that has the ability to choose love and to choose hate. And we call this gift free will. And it's this beautiful gift of free will which allows sin. And sin hurts. Now some of you might be saying, well, what is sin? I, I really think the best working definition for sin goes something like this. Sin is using anything that God created against its created purpose. It hurts you. You know, for instance, we know that words can bless and can encourage people, 
But we've also felt the sting of words that have torn us down, have discouraged us, have hurt us, have cursed us, have lied to us. We know that that hands were given to to help build up and to create, but maybe you have felt the pain and the sting as hands have been used to hurt or to destroy. God gives us these great gifts, and when they're used according to God's purposes, things go so well. I mean, you put gasoline in your car, and it runs. But if you as a human said, you know what, I'm going to drink gasoline, you would find that it does not help you run. It's lethal. And this is how it works. Scripture teaches us that God has given us good and loving gifts. As a matter of fact, Scripture tells us that God has only given good and loving gifts. And it's us as people who have taken our free will and have twisted them around. The Bible tells us in James chapter 1 that every good and perfect gift, it doesn't say some good and perfect gifts or a few of the good and perfect gifts. It says every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. James says this, listen, wherever you got this gift, whoever delivered it to you, if you have a good gift, it's come from God. God has given it to you. The psalmist celebrates this in Psalm 33. says, for the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. This means, friends, that all good gifts from God, come from God and all bad gifts come from someplace else. They come from evil and from sinfulness. And I'll tell you, I, I resent it personally. I personally resent it, and I personally get very angry when people will look somebody else in the eye and say, listen, this has happened because God wanted this bad thing to happen to you. Scripture is very clear that good things come from God, that life comes from God, that, that, that great, perfect gifts come from God. God does not cause bad things to happen. And because God does not cause bad things to happen, we've got to look someplace else to try to figure out why do bad things happen to good people. And the answer is sin. Sin causes bad things to happen. We've got three ways that sin expresses that. The first is that my sin can hurt me. The second is that other sin can hurt me. And the third is that sin in general can hurt me. Well, let's start with this first one. You you go back to the garden, Adam and Eve, there's no sin there. They eat the fruit, they choose sinfulness, they're taking what God created, using it against its purposes, and God looks at them and says, listen, you have chosen sin, and as a result, you will die. You will die. Sin brings death. Sin hurts us. You know, we look at people who, who have lived their lives in a hard way. And we look at somebody who's maybe spent the first 20 years of their adult life in drugs and hard living, and we look at how they just sort of fizzle out and die early, and we go, man, look what they did to themselves. And we feel sorry for them because they have have just hurt themselves. They've punished themselves. They've polluted themselves, and it's taken its toll. And in lesser ways, that happens too. You, You lie to people. You cause harm to people, and people don't trust you, and people don't spend time with you, and you find yourself in an isolation chamber that you have built for yourself with your own actions. My sin hurts me. Another way sin hurts me is that other people's sin can hurt me. Adam and Eve found out real quick that their own sin brought death to them, and they realized that other sin can hurt somebody. As they looked at their son, Cain and Abel. Cain kills his brother Abel. Why? Because he, he was jealous. He kills them. We live in a world of free will. Other people have free will. Sometimes it bumps into us. 
what would it look like if we didn't have free will? Well, if you've ever been to Disney World or Disneyland, they have a, lo- uh, a ride, an attraction called Autopia. Anybody seen Autopia, heard of Autopia? I've got a couple hands. It's incredibly painful, okay? It's really horrible. It's a really horrible ride. Kids love it. It's horrible. It is a bunch of gas-powered go-karts that go three miles an hour, no faster, and they are anchored to a concrete uh, rail. So you can't go off the road. You can't bump other people. If you bump them, it, like, shuts the car down, and so you've just got, like, three miles an hour breathing the fumes of thousands of other cars that have been there, and it's very painful. Children love it because they can drive themselves. Um, Adults hate it because you're just stuck in this thing for about, what it feels like an hour, in the sun, breathing exhaust, and it's not exciting because you can't crash, you can't wreck, you can't, it's not even like bumper cars. It's not even like that. It, it would be so much better if you could. You're anchored to one thing. I've never seen the Autopia on TV. I've never seen ESPN, even four, you know, four, seven, eight, ESPN 12, even at three in the morning, carry Autopia races. It, it, it's not there. They're not there. You know what you do find on ESPN, though, is NASCAR. Do have any NAS- people watch NASCAR? You can admit it. This church, you really shouldn't lie. Some of you are like, yes, yes, I, my name is, and I watch NASCAR. Um, others of you are like, yes, my, my family watch NASCAR. You don't, nobody, nobody admits it. Nobody admits it, I know. But we have NASCAR people here. I know. I've seen you. I know who you are. Um, people watch NASCAR. Why? Because the cars go like, like 200 miles an hour. The cars are not anchored to the road. If the driver chooses to run into the wall, they run into the wall. If the driver chooses to run into another driver, they run into another driver. And then for like three hours, they're like, let's show the instant replay that happened at lap 47 when these seven cars sprayed all their parts all over the track, and it took them 45 minutes to clean it up. Let's watch that one more time. And we watch that one more time because we love it. It's exciting to see that sort of thing happen. And that's how we live. We don't live in Autopia where we're anchored to the thing going three miles an hour. We live in a world where we go 200 miles an hour and we have free will. And sometimes people are texting while they drive and they're not thinking and they're not paying attention and boom, you have a collision. All of a sudden, other people's free will has crashed into us and has brought us pain. There's another way that sin hurts me. And a lot of you are going, well, what about tornadoes and tsunamis and lightning strikes and forest fires and feral groundhogs and rabid woodchucks? What about these things? Given, they are there. I would argue that these are also the effects of sin. When the world was created, Adam and Eve lived with the animals. They did not eat the animals. Peter was very happy at this point in time. Nothing died. Everything was at peace. If you've read or seen anything by Tolkien where the trees are alive and talking, you get a sense that maybe this is what like creation was, where the world lived in harmony and we could all sort of communicate and live at peace with each other. This is why when the the writers of Scripture talk about the future, they talk about the lion will lay down with the lamb. And it's not to eat the lamb, it's to snuggle the lamb, because lambs are some of God's most snuggly creatures. And the lion has not snuggled in a long time, because it's not, okay? At some point in time, the created order will be restored. Until then, we live with the effects of sin in the environment, in nature, everywhere. This is why Romans chapter 8, verse 22 through 23 says this. It says, We know that the whole creation, not some of it, but all of creation, has been groaning in labor pains until now. 
and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. So we see that sin is what's brought bad things into this world. They hurt good people. Good people created in the image of God are being wrecked by their own sinfulness. And I guess the better question is this, was where is God in the midst of all this right now? Is God sort of like a disinterested NASCAR fan just watching on TV as there's train wreck? And, well, you don't have train wrecks in NASCAR. That would make it even more exciting. (laughs) You should have seen when the freight train came through the brickyard today. Wow. I'm getting excited about NASCAR just thinking about that. So where's God right now? Is he just sort of watching disinterested? No, Scripture's pretty clear about what God is doing. God will not ignore evil forever. One point in time, God is going to make everything right because God is keeping track. One day, all the evil will be accounted for. I've given you three things that I think sort of speak to this. The first is this, is that the wrongs will be made right. God is going to take everything that's sort of out of balance and where there's a balance due, God's going to settle all those accounts. God is going to make every wrong right. God is going to restore those who suffer from brokenness and God will forgive those who have sinned. Let's look at each of these real quick in some scripture that goes with it. The first is the wrongs will be made right. Psalm 56 verse 8 says this, says, you have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your record? So for every time that you have cried out to God, literally cried out to God, lost sleep over sinfulness in the world, God has kept track of that. That's what the psalmist says. It says that God has kept track of your sleepless nights and of your tears. And He has written those down so that it will be made right at some point in time. Revelation gives us a picture of how this works. Revelation chapter 5, verse 8 says this, is when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So, church, any time that you've ever prayed to God and you said, God, are you listening? God, are my prayers just bouncing off of the ceiling? God, do you even care? Revelation gives us picture that all of your prayers have made it to heaven and they have been collected And they are there as incense, something that is beautiful and sweet and pleasant to God. And God has stored up your prayers. Those prayers play a pretty powerful role a few chapters later in the book of Revelation. In Revelation 8, it says that the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. In short, God's judgment breaks loose. How does it break loose? It's ignited. God's holy, righteous anger, His holy, righteous judgment, His holy and righteous desire for justice is, it lights on fire all of the prayers of the saints that have cried out for justice. And when God puts those things together, an angel throws it to the earth in this picture in Revelation, and every prayer is accounted for. God ignites those prayers with His justice and with His righteousness, and He settles the score once and for all. God makes everything right in the end. But what about the sin that's been done to me? What about the sin that's been done now? 
Romans chapter 8, verse 28 tells us this. It says, We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. I love this verse because it says we know all things work together or will work together. It doesn't say God's caused all things. It doesn't say that God caused evil to happen or, or the accident to happen or somebody to die. It doesn't say God did that. It says that He can use that. It says that God will take those things, those broken pieces, those unjust moments, and He will work those together somehow for good. It's sort of like mosaic pictures or stained glass. You see these things that are made out of broken glass shards that are glued together and and cemented together in such a way that it creates this beautiful picture. You get the sense that God is doing that inside of our lives. That all of those moments of brokenness and all those rough edges and all those sharp pieces, God is somehow taking and He's putting those together into something that is beautiful. Wrongs can be made right, brokenness can be restored, and finally sin will be forgiven. I suspect as we've been talking about God's righteous judgments were being lit on fire and sent down to earth, it causes most of us to feel a little uneasy because we realize, you know, we hate it when bad things happen to good people. But if we're real honest with ourselves, haven't we committed bad things against good people? Haven't we lied? Haven't we broken trust? Haven't we hurt? Haven't we made promises we didn't keep? Haven't we hurt good people through our own bad things? Romans chapter 6, verse 23 reminds us that the wages of sin, that's those bad things, is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, sins will be forgiven if we confess our sins to God. That's sort of the way out of this, is that we are all subject to God's judgment until we find that redeeming grace in Jesus Christ. The wages of sin is death. That's what they pay. That's the going rate for sinfulness. But God gives us a gift of life in Jesus Christ our Lord. And so thankfully, sins can be forgiven. And it can be forgiven at no cost to us. But it isn't a free gift. 1 Peter 2, verse 24 says this, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross, so that free from sin we might live for righteousness, By his wounds you have been healed, for you were going astray like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Peter reminds us that the free gift of salvation comes at great cost to Jesus Christ, because sin doesn't just go away. Bad things aren't just forgotten. There is a price to pay for sin and evil. Justice requires it. But thankfully, Jesus Christ has paid the price of our sins and offers us forgiveness at His expense. And not only that, I know that there are some of you here who are saying, well, that's great, but does He understand what it's like to be sinned against and hurt? And the answer is yes. I mean, you look at Christ on the cross, the whole thing is this incredibly unjust misunderstanding and conspiracy that the Son of God, who was perfect and loving, was tortured and rejected, humiliated and killed. So that not only could He forgive us of our sins, but that He could understand the effect of sin against us. And so if you have been hurt and you've suffered, even if you've suffered the great loss of a child even, consider how the Heavenly Father felt when He gave His only Son for us. When bad things happen to good people, God is there. And He says, I know 
how you feel. And I know how to heal you. Romans chapter 6, verse 3 gives us incredible hope. It says, do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we've been buried with him by baptism into death so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. As our worship team comes forward, I'd like to remind you that that gift is available to you here even this very morning. Maybe you came here and you didn't expect to consider what Christ has done for you, but as you've thought about it and as you've heard it, you've said, you know what, I would like to receive that free gift of Jesus Christ. This morning, I have good news, you can do that today. You can do that right now. And so if you are here and you are in need of experiencing that grace, that forgiveness, that healing, that restoration that Jesus Christ offers, we'll invite you to come forward as we sing this song. I'll be here to meet you and help to explain the way to Christ and His salvation. Please be standing as we sing.